how do you think you pronounce this word? Hage. And what do you think it means? No, I don't know. <laughs> you say it one more time, clear? Hickey. Close. Where are you from? Uh, Italy. 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 Okay. So if this was an Italian word, how would you pronounce it? Uh, Higgy. Higge. Are you lost? Yes. Higgy. Hygie? I don't know. I'd say hike. Is that right? Hig. Some Scandinavian word, I think. Is it Swedish? It's a Danish word. Danish, is it? All right. Going with some sort of livestock or cattle or something like that. I don't know. Hygge. Spot on. Yes. And what do you think it means? Uh, comfiness and warmth and good living. I, I, what he well, that, yeah. <laughs> if you've been to an Urban Outfitters or read The Guardian or just about any magazine or newspaper this winter, you've probably come across this concept called Huga, H-Y-G-G-E. It's absolutely everywhere. There are books made about it. There are think pieces written about it. And some people seem to think it's this kind of evil myth created to sell more stuff. But I went to Copenhagen before Christmas and suddenly the idea of Huga fell into place. It made sense. They really do have a survival strategy there and they know how to do hominess incredibly well. And it got me thinking that contentment really is tied to the place where you are. So in this episode, we hear from two people from opposite sides of the planet who find contentment in very different ways. Our very own senior editor, Mr. Neil McQuillan, went to South Dakota to speak to a guy who has been doing the Buffalo Roundup there for 50 years. But first up, we've got Mike Viking. He is the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute. And if there was a global spokesperson for Huga, it would be Mike. He spent the last year, in his words, collecting smiles around the planet. And on meeting him, it's impossible not to buy into his worldview. He is simply the happiest person I've ever met. So, Huga, see what you think. So I thought, yeah, I thought I'd start with an apology because this room is not particularly Huga. <laughs> uh, they wouldn't let me light a candle. I'm really sorry. No, we're not, we're not doing too well. I mean, the light is a bit odd in the ceiling and bright and harsh. Yeah. So yeah, a candle would would do wonders. So this this concept of huga, I'm pronouncing it right as yes. huga, but it's spelled kind of higgy, isn't it? Um, well, in, in in my language, it's spelled exactly like it's pronounced. <laughs> spelled huga. So can you can you explain exactly what it is? Yes, it has many definitions. I mean, some like to call it being consciously cozy. Some like to think of it as the art of creating a nice atmosphere. Uh, some call it cocoa by candlelight, socializing for introverts. I like to see it as a pursuit of everyday happiness, trying to build in some good moments, some positive experiences of of togetherness, of relaxation, and savoring simple pleasures on an everyday basis. And why why do you think it's taken off? Because this year it feels like it's absolutely everywhere. Everyone's it, talking about who it is. It's it's like the second Viking invasion. Uh, <laughs> I think it is because there is a global curiosity or global search in new ways of doing things or new ways of living. I was just in in South Korea last week, uh, and I think South Korea in many ways is the poster child of the challenge we are facing a lot of us in the developed world in terms of realizing that we have grown incredibly richer but not happier and if you take south korea they have 
I mean, over the past 60 years, gone from one of the poorest countries in the world to one of the richest countries. Their standard of living is exceptional, highest rate of tertiary education, really long life expectancy, human development extremely well. But at the same time, they're really lacking in quality of life. And they somehow feel they have failed in converting wealth into well-being. Uh, they work extremely long hours. They have the highest suicide rate in the OECD countries. And I think a lot of us have this feeling that, yes, our standard of living have increased, but we're not really feeling it in terms of quality of life. Mm. And I think that's why more and more countries, more and more people are looking towards Scandinavia in general and Denmark in particular, because we're doing quite well in the happiness rankings. So, of course, Hugo needs to be interpreted in... You know, in, within the local context or the national context. Another dimension to it is, you know, how happy do we feel and how happy do we look? Because when I talk to, to Danes about happiness and the happiness rankings, some of them will say, well, you know, you know I, 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 I see in the happiness rankings we're at the top, but when I look down the street February morning going to work, we don't look that happy. Uh, so I'm I'm the kind of guy that says okay let's let's get some data on this and let's see what what the evidence says. So for the past three or four years during my travels, I have collected smiles uh, around the world mm. and uh, made around seven thousand observations on the frequency of smiles in about seventeen cities: London, New York, Paris, Copenhagen, Guadalajara, Mexico, Singapore, Warsaw, Seoul, around the world. Um, to try and see, okay, so do Danes smile more or less than other people? And, of course, the answer is, well, it depends on who you compare them with. Uh, if, I'm sorry to say, if you compare them with people in London, yes, we do smile quite frequently. Not many smiles <laughs> in London. Uh, but if you look at, at Kuala Lumpur, if you look at Guadalajara, Mexico, people smile more there. But, but and of course, I don't see necessarily a one-to-one relationship between smiling and being happy. I can be very happy without smiling. Um, and I can smile without uh, being very happy. I suppose in, so in somewhere like Copenhagen, I see, correct me if I'm wrong, I see Copenhagen as almost being the capital of Huga. It's it's this city that's really embraced, and that's where you're based, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, the Happiness Research Institute is based in Copenhagen. Okay, so what is it about Copenhagen as a city that makes it so Huga? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's definitely a Huga city. I think it's definitely also a city that delivers quality of life to a large group of people, which I think there is a relationship with between Hugo and, and, and happiness and quality of life. And I think in terms of, of why, I think it's because quality of life or Hugo in Copenhagen is relatively free. One of the great things and one of the things I love about Copenhagen is that even if I lost my job tomorrow and lost all my income, I would still be able to enjoy relatively the same level of quality of life uh, as I do today. Mm. I don't own a car, so I cycle everywhere today um, because the city has an infrastructure and a size that enables me to do so because we have invested a lot in in cycling infrastructure. And that means that my mobility is not based on an income. So I'm not the same way worried if I were to lose my job. And also when it comes to, to Hygge, I think being able to experience Hygge is also an inexpensive thing or an inexpensive activity. 
you can find a lot of places which are very hugely, as the adjective is, <laughs> yep. in Copenhagen without having to spend a lot of money. And actually, hygge is considered inexpensive. It's not luxurious. It's not oysters in champagne. Uh, actually, if you walk into a restaurant in Copenhagen or, or elsewhere that is beyond your budget, you can look at your friends and say, should we find a place that's more hygge Okay. Go, yeah, yeah, let's find a place that's more hygge Right. Um, because it is, it is more rustic, it's more simple, it's more sort of everyday people kind of places that are considered hygge than, you know, uh, the, the fancy places. Okay, that makes sense. And on that, on the idea of cycling, which you mentioned, I was in Copenhagen a few weeks ago, and I knew that it was a city that embraced cycling. Yeah. The, there were bikes absolutely everywhere. And a lot of them, I noticed, weren't locked up. Or if they were, they just had a really kind of, you know, flimsy yeah. lock around the back wheel or something. Yeah. So what's does that come into the idea of Hugo? Or is that a city that is built on trust? I don't know. I just found it really interesting. Because in London, if you did that, it would right. be gone in half a minute. Yeah. And, of course, bikes are stolen in Copenhagen. But um, there is high levels of trust. There is high levels of security. And I think it comes down to the high level of equality. There's, another, there's not a lot to fight or compete for. We pretty much all have the same things, um, which creates a very secure, equal society. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad you went cycling because I think that's really the way to experience Copenhagen. I think, you know, Copenhagen, we don't, we don't have great attractions. There's not a Pantheon or an Eiffel Tower or all the fantastic things you have here in London, but it's just a really great city to live in. And that's the way, I think, to experience Copenhagen. Try to live like a person from Copenhagen. Cycle around. Experience the great free parks, uh, the wonderful weather we have during the summer. Summer is a perfect time to visit Copenhagen because that's when the entire city explodes in people who have been hibernating for all year doing hygge inside their homes. Um, also for us, we hygge most of the year, but for the wintertime, it's really a survival strategy to get through the dark, wet, cold uh, months. Um, so when spring arrives, uh, the whole city just explodes in people sitting outside on cafes and square, drinking coffee and, and, and uh, beer and so on. And I think that's what is great about Copenhagen. It's not a city with a lot of attractions, but it's just a really great city to be a person in. Mm. When you travel, you're kind of throwing yourself out of your comfort zone. Right. Whereas Hugo is all about being within your comfort zone and ho- hominess, they call it in Canada, I think. Yeah, yeah. All this idea. So do you think that the two theories are compatible? Can you go away and experience true Hugo or, or will you only ever sample it in quite a kind of <laughs> face value sort of way? I think you can have elements of Hugo also when you are abroad. But, but you are right. It is more difficult. It is a paradox because, as you say, for some of the Canadians, their equivalent might be hominess and naturally travel your way from home yeah and i guess things like airbnb and there are more and more of these platforms where you can have dinner parties at people's houses like it definitely feels like there's a trend that is moving towards behaving more like a local rather than as a tourist no you're right and yeah i've i've used airbnb before and you're definitely right it is more hygge uh, because you feel you are in a home instead of a however much they try hotels you know you are very aware that you are 
in a hotel in a strange city. Mm. Uh, so so yeah, that's definitely a way to do to do. Yeah, I had quite a hygge weekend. The weekend just gone. I went to Sweden. Yeah, this was through Airbnb actually. I found this cabin. It was about twenty five miles north of Gothenburg. Nice. And I I think we managed to achieve ultimate hygge, <laughs> but I wanted to talk to you about it. Um, you know, it was candles. It's not a competition. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was snow everywhere and candles, and it did. It was this experience where I think maybe five ten years ago it would have been really hard to have had this sense of actually feeling properly at home and not feeling the need to do anything. You can just right. escape. Yeah. And I think that's what travel is increasingly becoming about is escaping from stuff rather than having experiences yeah. necessarily that you need to write home about. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. It sounds very, very hoogie. <laughs> <laughs> it was very hoogie. Um, but so that was in Sweden. And that right. was something I wanted to go into is this idea that the concept changes slightly within countries. Is that right? So in, in Denmark, would you say the way people interpret hygge is slightly different to how people in Sweden or in Germany or in Finland, they're equivalent words for it? Um, they have similar words in in Norwegian and Swedish. They call it kuseli in Norwegian. They call it muselid in, in Swedish. Um, I think there are some differences between those words and the Danish hygge. I think one of the differences is that kuseli and museli are something you use to describe situations or things or places with. Something can be kuseli. It's an adjective. And you can also use that for hygge. Something can be hyggeli. But in Danish, you can also use hygge as a verb. So it's something you can do actively. Come okay. on, let's hygge. Or you want to come over and hygge with us tonight. And I think the the second difference is that Danes obsess about hygge in a way, meaning that um, we constantly talk about hygge. I'll invite you over for uh, dinner on Saturday, and then during the week we'll talk about how hyggely Saturday is going to be. Okay. Then on Saturday we'll talk about how hyggely this is, <laughs> and then on Monday we'll talk about how hyggely Saturday was. So we talk about it all the time. Restaurants, cafes, hotels advertise with how hygge they are, even though they sort of can't, it's not something you can buy. And and we also in Denmark see hygge as part of our cultural DNA. It's, it's, you know, the same way Americans look at freedom as inherently American, Danes look at hygge the same way. So I think that's the difference between Denmark, Sweden and Norway. Mm. And I guess in that sense, so you mentioned that the, the book's been translated in 23 languages. And it is huge at the moment. Like, you know, if you Google Hugo, there's millions and millions of articles on it all over yeah. the place. seems yeah. like there is a bit of a, a growing sense of people. Is there like a frustration around it or are people getting... Do people think that Danish... Is there like a smugness that surrounds it, do you think, in any way? I think there's a risk th- that it can be. Uh, I, was really, I was really enjoying... I saw the other day uh, that there was a, a satire... Is that what you call it? a satire book, a yeah. sort of mock book about Hugo, <laughs> uh, which I thought was really, really funny. The the bits I read, it wrote about uh, the, the Danish National Office of Statistics. They said they had their official motto was, you know, winning every statistic since 1959 or something like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so, yes, I think you're right. There is a risk of being that there is a smugness uh, to it. And I think it's also important to say 
with with happiness, especially when when we look at the Happiness Research Institute and and the happiness rankings, uh, Denmark does very good in the happiness rankings. We have a very high national average. Does it mean that Denmark is some sort of utopia where you know wolves and sheep will sleep together cuddly at night in warm blankets with pillows all around? No. Uh, I mean, we have a lot of issues as a country, a lot of challenges too. We do relatively well because we have a welfare state that reduces extreme unhappiness through social security and universal health care. So you can say we're the happiest country in the world or you can say we're the least unhappy, uh, which I think is probably cr- closer to, to the truth. Um, and I think that's important to bring forward. Mm. Denmark is by no means a, a perfect uh, utopia. Yeah. And do you think that the the relation between countries and how they embrace this idea of hygge is do you think the weather has a lot to do with it because i guess somewhere like denmark you know you have real highs and lows you have like you said you have these gorgeous summers and then you have quite long and often miserable winters which it, it means that you almost have to try you need to consciously do things such as light candles right. and invite friends around and put yeah. jumps on and have yeah. lots of cakes and hot chocolates and yeah. things like that you know If you had asked me a year ago which languages would it be or which countries would it be relevant in, I would have said like, you know, uh, extreme north and extreme south where they have long winters, like Canada, Finland, Russia, those countries. And they have embraced the concept as well. But I'm surprised to see it also being translated to very sunny places like Portugal, Spain, Italy, Thailand. Um i think it may be because of several things. I mean, you can do hygge all year round. In the book, we also have two tips for hygge during the summertime, and we do hygge in the summertime. But for the wintertime, it is a survival strategy. It is a way to make the best of a January where you see the sun through extreme levels of clouds, uh, seven hours per day. Um But but you can hygge throughout throughout the year, and I, and I think it is those those tips that they are properly embracing in 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 the sunnier uh, countries. Yeah, okay. And something that I I was reading a book, something else that comes up, like we mentioned before, is cycling and the link between cycling and happiness. Now you talk about that in in the sense of commuting. So when people cycle, they've got higher generally have higher levels of happiness, which makes sense. I think I cycle around London even though it does make me quiet. You're a brave man. Yeah. I mean, it does. You do. It turns you into an awful human being. You kind of come home riled up. And, but no, it's, it's it's still the best way of getting around. And right. I, I think I'd agree with that. Mm. Have you ever cycled in London before? I wouldn't dare. Well, often the bike lane is shared with the bus lane. Right. And you'll be cycling and then suddenly this enormous kind of rhino of a vehicle will just pull in in front of you and your life flashes before your eyes. That's not hygge. Not very. No. <laughs> not hygge. Mark, thank you so much for coming in. It's been Thanks fascinating. Cheers. You'll be glad to hear that since speaking to Mike, we have fully embraced hygge here at Rough Guides. Over there in the corner... There's a crackling fire, and just in front of me is a steaming cup of cocoa. But I I do think there's something in hygge. I see it as a kind of antidote to bleakness, or as Mike says, it's like a survival strategy. I think more than ever now in the world that we live in, we do need survival strategies to find happiness and fulfilment. 
Now, any travel writer worth their salt is armed with stories. And our team of editors and writers are constantly travelling on the road. We always have someone somewhere in an exotic part of the world. So, as part of this podcast, when people come back from their trips tanned and relaxed, I'm going to be hauling them down to the studio to ask them about where they've been and what they've been up to. And in this episode, we have got Mr. Neil McQuillan. He's senior editor at Rough Guides and genuinely one of the best travel writers that I know. He went to South Dakota last year to witness their annual Buffalo Roundup. I'm in the Black Hills of South Dakota. It's a sunny morning. Sun's beating down even though it's late September and I'm about to get on the horse. It's being allocated for me at the moment. Um, It's probably the fourth time I've ridden in my life. And the second time the horse sprinted for home against my will, uh, cut me up across my face. So I'm hoping that's not going to happen today. Everyone else, there's six of the riders, they've all been allocated a horse already. Um, I'm worried that they're trying to find a giraffe for me as I'm quite tall. I know, there it is. It's a huge black beauty, (laughs) seemingly. All right, this is Dooley. Okay. Dooley. Yeah, I am last. Thanks. Okay. So Dooley and Sonny are half brothers. Okay. So if Dooley gets right up and puts his nose on Sonny's butt, that's yeah. okay. They're okay. friends, okay? Okay. And uh, he'll actually help push Sonny to go a little faster because Sonny okay. can sometimes be a slowpoke. Just one more time. Let me yep. loop up. Okay. There we go. Thank you. And just keep your reins nice and relaxed, oh, yeah. that way he can do his job. Okay, right. thanks a lot. Can you put pressure in both your feet? Yep. Awesome. Okay. Okay. So me and Dooley are at the back of the trail. I've definitely got the biggest horse. And Dooley is behind Sonny, who is Dooley's friend. So they keep on sniffing each other in special places. What's going on here? Yeah, so I was in South Dakota for a week Um and the culmination of that first week was going to be this thing called the Buffalo Roundup, which is an annual event which has been going for 51 years. It's a practical thing. So the Great Plains of the United States were once filled with millions and millions and millions of, of bison. They're actually bison. The, the original settlers called them buffalo because they resembled the buffalo from, from Europe and Asia, from Africa and Asia, rather. But they're actually American bison. And when the settlers started like, kind of making their mark on the Great Plains. They ended up slaughtering a lot of the bison um, for meat and for sport and just, and partly actually as a means of cutting off the food supply and the sort of central tenet of the Native American's life. So it's got a pretty, you know I mean, it's got a pretty dark history, really, the kind of the, the diminishing numbers of the bison. But the ones that are left now are still protected by various like national parks. This is one of the, the national park's bison herds. And for much of the year, they just roam as they want to around the prairie. Um, but then once a year, they have to bring them all together and appraise like the health of the herd and count how many there are. So they, they, they cull some or sell them off. So this is like the event where they corral them all. They sort of, in the days leading up to the, to the roundup, they're scattered everywhere throughout the park. So they kind of just slowly like bring them in, bring them in, bring them in. And then on the final day, that's when they get them into the final paddock where they can be um, assessed. 
rattling along in the pickup now. There's about 15 of other cars all around us. And I don't know, maybe 40 Wranglers I can see. One in a bright pink tracksuit top. Uh, Miss South Dakota herself is wearing a nice purple top and some very spectacular chaps. It's the Buffaloes, the stars of the show. They are absolutely enormous and pretty beautiful in a kind of brutal way. And the Cowboys or Wranglers are absolutely going for it. They're whipping and whooping and some of it very high-pitched. You wouldn't have thought that uh, men of that ruggedness would be capable of such high-pitched noises. Um, holding on tight now because we're moving pretty fast. So as a spectator, what exactly are you witnessing? The spectators are up on the kind of like, there are these low hills around the prairie and just this big congregation of spectators stand on the side of the hills. And I mean, I think a lot of them just come along just for the sense of being there because they're quite far away from what's happening. So they don't actually see that much, but what the, what they can see is just this like kind of stream of black buffalo kind of um, snaking their way across the prairie with lots of cowboys and cowgirls on either side of them kind of cracking their whips and then a few jeeps on either side as well sort of corralling them through the, the different fields. I want to talk to you about Bob Lantis. Oh, uh, you know Bob, do you? So, yeah, I know Bob well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Everyone this is the guy, Bob. you sent me a recording of your yeah. conversation with Bob yeah, Lantis. Yeah. Um, could you could you describe this this gentleman who, who you met? Yeah, so I'd heard about Bob. He, he, he was... Bob was on everybody's lips on the day. Have you met Bob? Have you seen Bob? Where is where is Bob? And when I finally found him, there was no mistaking it because he's like he was like this kind of turtle-skinned man. He was so old. He's about eighty-five. He was sitting on top of his horse, um, but he was still. You, you could tell that he was completely in command of that horse. Like even though he was like um, he, he was older than my a lot older than my parents. Like he looked like the sort of man. He'd, if he got onto the bus, you'd get up and let him sit in your seat, basically. Right. But he was on a horse and he's been working the roundup for the last 45 roundups and the roundups have only been going for 51 years um and yeah and he, he he told me that he just intends to keep on coming back keep on coming back and i can imagine that he might you know come back even after he's passed away and they just sort of prop him up in the saddle because <laughs> he was like yeah he's the heart and soul of the buffalo roundup basically oh yeah how many have you done, Bob? Huh? How many roundups have you done? 45. 45 from the beginning? Yeah, I'm just beginning, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the thing about it is, is that when you're doing something that you really love to do, yeah. it uh, time goes for doggone fast, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And when I stop to think how long I've done it, it doesn't seem that long. It just, it just doesn't seem that long. It, 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 Granted, 45 years. There's wow. people that are 45 years old never been on a horse, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and there were no spectators at the beginning. That when, you, when we start out, you're always anticipating just running as hard as you can and getting up there and watching out for prairie dog. You know, we ride across the prairie dog hole far, as fast as we can go. We have to watch that. But, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. And if you're really running and doing it right, you don't even think about it. You don't even think about it. And all you're interested in is putting your feet deep in the stirrup and keep riding, you know. What I like about your conversation with him is that you ask him some questions and then he answers a very slightly different 
question, yeah. but he still kind of does answer. He has quite a coherence to him. Because yeah. did you say he's an oxygenarian? Is he? He's eighty-five. I think eighty-five. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow, what a guy. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, he obviously. He, he just wanted to talk. He just wanted to talk about the roundup. I think he was quite... So many people wanted to speak to him, um, members of the public. Um, I think he was quite... Th- I, I got the impression that he took his energy from, like, that kind of thing. He obviously gets a lot of energy from the buffalo, from chasing the bison, and just, like, I think it keeps him young. I love the idea of Bob Lantis out there somewhere working the eternal buffalo roundup. It's people like him who really make a place what it is. And Bob wouldn't make it into the rough guide. And that's the great thing about this podcast is it gives us a chance to hear from voices and characters like Bob from around the world. So next week, this is happening. I went to Parity this summer, too, where everybody was talking about, oh, it's the next cool place. It's our, Once there's a dream catcher, it's over. Yeah. And there's <laughs> Americans, you know, going, I just found an alpaca. You've got... Leave the country, clear the decks, <laughs> get, get out of there. You might know that voice. It is American comedian, author, and, as it turns out, travel writer Ruby Wax. She joins me in the studio. She's hilarious. She's utterly full-on. And probably won't surprise you to find out that she does not let anything past her. It's loads of fun, so tune in for the next episode. Thank you to Mike Viking for coming in. You can read more about Huga in his beautiful book, The Little Book of Huga. Cheers also to Julia Murday from Penguin for hooking us up, Neil McQuillan, Jed Flood for the music, to my boss George D, to my producer Alana Chance, and Ruth Barnes, Laura Sheeter, and Stuart Silver from Children Blade. Denmark. Hi, Gay. The answer is Huga. Huh? Beg your pardon? Huga. Huga? Yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> all languages are crazy in a way. Talk about French. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All so right, oh, so you are a, um, recording this uh, for some school project or something? That's right, it's for a podcast, yeah. So if you want people to pronounce it, you've got to spell it better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. No, sir, thank you very much.